Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, Masal Khair. Thank you for joining us in tonight's special event. On behalf of NYU Abu Dhabi's Institute, the Division of Arts and Humanities, and the Arab Crossroads Studies Program, I welcome you to this extraordinary lecture by Professor Christos Alamandro. This is the third in our series, Art and Power in the Middle East, Past and Present. And tonight, we're privileged to host Dr. Salamandra, who is a specialist on Syrian media, and one of the very few anthropologists, and I would dare say the leading anthropologist, who's worked on Syria in the last several decades. We're a small clan, we're very proud of ourselves, and she's at the head of it. Professor Salamandra uh, teaches in the Department of Anthropology at Lehman College at the City University of New York, and is also on the faculty of the Distinguished Graduate Center at CUNY as well. She reserved, received her PhD from Oxford University, and I believe an, N, uh, an MA from NYU as well. And she's been the recipient of a, a whole slew of prestigious um, awards and fellowships, including most recently a Fulbright Award at the American University of Sharjah, but also all sorts of other um, visiting fellowships at the University of Copenhagen, long-term engagements with the University of Lund, and uh, the Lebanese American University as well. She's the author of an extraordinary number of very important articles on Syrian popular culture and media, and uh, a very important early book, A New Old Damascus, Authenticity and Distinction in Urban Syria. Uh, this is one of the first and most important texts to uh, explore the social meaning of the old city of Damascus as a metaphor for how people understand their own lives and their own sense of a trajectory in a society that was rapidly transforming. It set the stage and really is a benchmark for all the studies that came afterwards. She's also turned her attention to more um, uh, questions related to cultural politics, along with uh, Leif Stenberg of Lund University is co-editor of Syria from Reform to Revolt from Syracuse University Press just a few years back. Uh, and I have to say, it gives me a particular uh, pleasure to welcome Krista uh, to NYU because she's not only a colleague um, of mine at CUNY and a fellow anthropologist working in Syria, but also a friend. And uh, we've met in many different places around the world, including Istanbul and, of course, all over New York City. But I dare say we've not yet had the occasion to run into one another in Syria. Although when I first started my field research there in 1996, almost everybody I met said, do you know Dr. Krista? Do you know Krista? The, the anthropology is always asking us about what we eat and what we cook and where we live. Um, and then later as I, um, we ended up having a number of colleagues in common, it became a wonderful set of conversations about shared friends. And therefore it's a, especially poignant for me tonight to introduce um, not only her, but the, um, the topic, which is the right to the ruins, fictional media production and the Syrian conflict. Very important intervention in how we understand um, uh, representations of the Syrian conflict and revolution and how we might understand uh, prospects for going forward. I remind the audience members that we have a question and answer session at the end. You can click at the bottom of your Zoom screen where it says Q&A and you can post questions and uh, I will moderate a discussion afterwards. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Krista Salamandra. Thank you so much, Jonathan, uh, for that wonderful, um, amazing, and humbling introduction. I um, think I have a, quite a bit of competition for the 
position of, at the helm of of the anthropology of Syria from, uh, from you in particular. Um, and I also wanna thank the NYU Abu Ghabi Institute for giving me this opportunity. I'm a proud alumna of NYU, as you mentioned, but both MA and BA. So I, I'm, um, I'm an NYU person to the core. So let me just try and uh, we practice this and I hope I get it right, this screen share, okay. Uh, oops. My friend and colleague Victoria Sanford has written that most of the academics she knows who work in war zones and conflict settings never wanted to go there. There being the everyday experience of war, misery, and social struggle. My book project, begun as an ethnography of a single television serial, has emerged as the story of how my drama interlock maker interlocutors and I got there. To a place, I venture to say, beyond our worst nightmares, and one that has recast our work in various ways. My own journey began in the early 1990s when dissertation research on old city revivalism led me to the first drama serial set in early 20th century old Damascus. This was the beginning of what has become known since as Syria's drama outpouring, El Faura Adramiya, that emerged with the loosening of the prohibition on private production companies in Syria and the launch of Pan-Arab satellite entertainment networks in the Emirates. And this slide um, is of the footprint of NBC which is uh, arguably the, the, the premiere of these. <clears throat> the outpouring peaked in the, early, in the early 2000s as satellite access spread throughout the region. Um, and these are just some slides that will give you a sense of the scale of this. This is Cairo and Cairo again. And this is actually Yemen um, and a very poor quarter in Yemen at that. But you see all of those satellite dishes. I think they're one, two, three, four, five, six, I think. And of course, Dubai Media City, which is the headquarters of, um, as many of you know, of um, NBC and many other satellite networks. It, this was also the time when I was ready to begin a new research project. My desire to tell the story of Syrian drama's phenomenal and perhaps improbable rise now compels an examination of its role in a devastating revolution turned civil and proxy war, said to be the most mediated conflict in history. It's not a story I'd ever imagined telling, but it's one that urgently needs to be told. The conflict has reinvigorated longstanding questions about the relationship among Syria's largest cultural industry, the Syrian regime, and other regional players. Drama makers now find themselves embroiled in debates over the ethics of the image that have emerged with another outpouring, photographs and videos documenting violence, death, and destruction that have proliferated in professional news outlets and on social media platforms. As Syria's most prominent, most visible public intellectuals, Drama creators have faced pressures to both take political positions and consequences for whatever stance they've chosen. 
Those who have supported even faintly the protesters' early calls for reform were harassed by LSD loyalists. Those demanding the regime's demise have faced stronger forms of intimidation, including violence and incarceration. Many fled into exile. Those backing the regime encountered an internet defamation campaign, ending up on a Facebook wall of shame. Those whose stance is ambiguous, characterized as gray, face a range of responses. How the members of the drama field, Michel Elfen, as it is called, found themselves in this position of prominence is part of the story of the Syrian television industry, its rise to prominence, and its position in Syrian society. Syrian creators have developed a distinctive, indeed instantly recognizable style of the Muselsel, the 30 episode dramatic serial that is showcased on consecutive evenings during the holy month and key broadcast season of Ramadan. Drama serials have familiarized Arab viewers with Syria's lilting dialect and with the winding street and courtyard, streets and courtyard houses of its old city quarters. Drama has survived economic transformation, ideological interference, and an ongoing war, producing an average of 20 serials a year, roughly half its pre-war peak number. And I operate here with a very loose definition of Syrian drama, and we can talk about what now constitutes Syrian drama in the Q&A if um, anyone would like. The industry's history itself reads like a rag to Russian's television screenplay. In the first decades, of television broadcast in the region from the 60s through to the, the 1980s, Syria took a backseat to Egypt, long the center of Arab media production. By the early 1990s, Egyptian drama had evolved into star vehicles with low production values. In contrast, the Syrians devised a distinctive product for the emerging Arabic language market. Unable to construct studio sets, Syrian directors took their cameras on location. With no film industry to employ them, they applied cinematic training to their television drama, devising what became known in director Haisam Haqqi's phrase, and, and there he is, um, as televised cinema, cinema al-mutalfaza. Lacking a viable national net market, Producers sold their products to Gulf Co Cooperation Council-owned Pan-Arab satellite stations. Literary authors found employment and renown by writing TV drama scripts and evaded the censorship restrictions applied more strictly to nonfiction. The absence of a star system generated strong ensemble casts and left budgets available for higher production values. As a counterpoint to Egyptian drama's strong national identity, the Syrian Muselsel evokes a wider Arab sensibility, a style I refer to as aesthetic Arabism. And these, these are some of the, um, the differences between the two styles. And this really refers to the period from the 1990s through to the early 2010s, when Egyptian drama really um, experienced, enjoyed a resurgence. Ongoing restrictions on freedom of expression coupled with commercial expansion have proved generative. Syrian drama harnesses intellectual energies that might have animated otherwise, participatory politics, social movements, journalism, or academia. 
The virtual absence of locally produced cinema, widespread satellite access, and limited markets for books, theater, and the arts all channeled the nation's creativity into fictional television. For serious intellectuals and artists, drama has become a mainstay of employment and the largest platform for creative endeavor. As a result, the Muselso has emerged as a sophisticated genre imbued with political positions, social analyses, and philosophical observations. Many reflect the secular progressive ideologies that Arab regimes have abandoned and Islamic revivalism supplanted. These stances take shape through a somber, gritty sensibility expressed in social realism and political satire, which has come to define Syrian television creations. Syrian drama as a media product and as a field of a creative endeavor is differentiated in ideological messaging, production values, and artistic ambition. In other words, it's very hard to generalize about. Social realism represents its most serious register. But if you were to ask a Muselsel viewer their favorite drama of the satellite era, many would answer Babel Hara. And this is not a, a, a still or a poster from the series itself, but rather a menu from a restaurant in Cairo, one of the many restaurants and cafes that bear this, these serials name. This 10-season blockbuster has come to stand for the Syrian industry, much to the chagrin of serious-minded drama creators who have dubbed the hit show Bab al-Khara, Shit Gate. But works like the, the Neighborhood Gate represent what is likely Syrian drama's most, most popularly beloved contemporary form, the Damascene Milieu or Be a Shamia serial that nostalgically reimagines urban life in the early 20th century. Yet Syrian drama doesn't only romanticize the past. Pan-Arab satellite television's generous airtime and independence from ratings has generated niche markets, much like cable technology did for the American and now global television industries. Leading creators typically adopt a one-for-the-money, one-for-the-art approach, producing lucrative folklore and costume history to subsidize their more artistically ambitious projects. Realist drama, a form crafted in the state sector of the 1980s, endures in the neoliberal era. Through their distinctive dark aesthetic, Syrian creators have shed light on the city's nether regions, the informal settlements or shanty towns that housed 60% of Syria's post-war urban population and became key sites of anti-regime uprising. Seen as a corpus, Syrian drama offers an intertextual dialogue of nostalgia and dystopia. A stroke of fieldwork serendipity led me to realism. When I arrived at Damascus for television fieldwork in June of 2006, I had no idea what end of the register this, the, um, the register spectrum I would end up following. Most productions for that Ramadan season beginning in, in September were nearing post-production. A journalist friend put me in touch with director Lace Hajjo, who had just begun filming a delayed project. 
I had seen Haju's satirical sketch program Spotlight Bukado and his hard-hitting debut drama, The Noirish Behind Bars, Khalf al-Qadban. To my luck, he and producers Wa'il Swaidani agreed without apparent hesitation to host me during the making of El Intizar in my favorite form, contemporary social drama, drama al-Ijtima'iyya the serial traces the life paths of characters who, through various misfortunes, end up in the ramshackle suburb of Duela. Despite struggling to move up and out of the neighborhood and its poverty, they remain locked in a frustrating limbo, consigned, as the protagonist puts it, to an endless waiting list. The script's co-authors, Najib Nser and Hassan Sami Youssef, are Syria's most critically acclaimed screenwriters. They share an affinity with and a concern for the informal settlement, the haphazard neighborhood as, as it is known in Arabic, waiting required months of filming in narrow, broken down alleyways and tiny impoverished houses. Hajo and his cast and crew experienced this blight firsthand in long days of filming among the real life Ahl al-Hara, our neighborhood folk. Ultimately, the serial waiting became much more than a work I admired. It exemplified Syrian drama's somber sensibility. The nation's leading TV screenwriters penned it and some of its finest actors brought it to life. Waiting reflected with critically acknowledged authenticity, the urban poverty afflicting many and did so with a profound, unsentimental beauty that I argue qualifies it as quality or art television. It launched what has become known as the shanty town genre, um, drama al-Ashwa'iyya. It also reanimated Syria's long tradition of televisual realism. Now, a few words about realism, because it will become important later when I address the controversy that um, it has recently provoked. Realism has become associated with a set of techniques and conventions, um, including some of those that are mentioned here. And among um, those which Syrian uh, social drama all reflect, um, or, or mostly reflect, on-location filming is key. It's the hallmark of Syrian drama, and as we'll see later, it, it, um, it's part of what generated the tensions that emerged during the war. Strains of melodrama do weave their way through Syrian social serials. In fact, realism and melodrama are more closely related than is often acknowledged, particularly by those maintaining an elitist view of melodrama as vulgar sentimentality. Scholars like Peter Brooks and Christine Gledhill note the intertwining of the two styles. Musoso themes echo the long-standing concerns of visual realism. These include gender inequality, intergenerational conflict, class struggle, regional tensions, mental illness, rape, child abuse, gender violence, and more recently armed conflict. They point to state neglect, sometimes overtly, more often subtly. 
With their distinctive dark aesthetics, Syrian social dramas typically end unhappily and lack resolution. Though seemingly progressive, realism has long been criticized for the ultimate conservatism of its vision in Europe and elsewhere. No Hope, the title of Haja's 2004 Beckettian vignettes, seems to epitomize realism's acquiescence. Social drama invites this critique. It offers a degraded present with no redemptive future. I just want to go back to the, the previous slide. This is um, a still from the first scene of the first episode of Waiting, and it's a real child in real rubble um, just outside the very real neighborhood in which we filmed. Critics of the industry especially those involved in higher and more autonomous fields of artistic endeavor, point to what they see as graver problems. They argue that while the Muselsa may appear politically transgressive, it promote, ultimately promotes compliance. Syrian intellectuals sometimes dismiss critical dramas as tenfis, a safety valve mechanism offering repressed subjects an opportunity to vent, literally letting them breathe. The Muselsa, they contend, is little more than an elaborate exercise in regime image-making. Seemingly critical serials siphon off and diffuse dissent and lend the regime an appearance of openness. Their mere presence suggests that the leadership is aware of problems and engaged in their solution. The regime, they argue, sets the parameters of the sayable and suggests this should be said. What looks like a broadening of freedom of expression in the neoliberal era is in fact merely an outsourcing of propaganda. This consensus view of the Syrian Muselsel stresses the convergences of interest and mutual benefit among drama makers and regime functionaries. Some evidence appears to support this interpretation. The progressive secular stances held by many Syrian drama makers often align with Ba'athist ideology. Drama serials sometimes coincide with specific political campaigns and slogans. During the conflict, several high-profile actors publicly supported Bashar al-Assad, disappointing fans who sympathize with the opposition and suggesting that even drama makers renowned for political critique had all along been in the pocket of power. One might dismiss social drama's evocations of urban blight as niggling rather than transgressive. Academic debates over media effects more generally grapple with this sort of issue. But I argue that many realist works contest neoliberal ideology and that dramas uphold progressive, progressive positions and ideals that the Ba'athist policy has long abandoned not only in practice, but in rhetoric. References to a social market economy have come to dominate official discourse, obscuring rampant privatization and shrinking state services. Indeed, the conditions shaping the possibilities of drama production both enable and constrain the Muselso. 
Social realism's echo of an older Baathist ideology has enabled its growth as a genre and kind of kept it alive. The politics of Syrian drama production certainly challenge analysis, but beliefs cannot be inferred from behaviors and alliance with state ideology does not automatically entail approval of regime practice. I argue that the congruity of rhetorical position does not necessarily entail mutual affinity. Interior states are notoriously difficult to account for and behavior, particularly in heavily controlled contexts, complex and ambiguous. Ultimately, I maintain regime control, regime intent is difficult to gauge, impossible to verify, and likely unstable. Officialdom may allow or suggest, but what creators do with these permissions and proposals reveals significant slippage and add to that how viewers read these products. Messages are multiple and readings unpredictable. My ethnography recognizes stringent controls, but explores creators' manipulation of a marginal freedom. I focus on drama makers leveraging of a limited autonomy to propose to produce ethic, uh, critical depictions of politics and society that implicate the ruling elite and other perceived sources of, of social political malignancy. Ultimately, I am interested less in how authoritarianism works and more in how people work through authoritarian structures. That drama makers, other in Syrian intellectuals and academics who study them have different takes on the forms and degrees of influence on media production is unsurprising and reflects the system's opacity. Power works to preclude consensus over how power works. And Syrian drama is always already contingent on a range of forces and interests. Syrian viewers know this. They generally assume some degree of inter ideological interference. They don't presume that what they see on television is the unfettered product of drama makers' creative or political vision let alone an accurate reflection of anyone's reality. Syrian audiences understand the power shaping cell cell production. They deploy a sophisticated interpretive apparatus to decode the multiple messages embedded in a given serial. Security service involvement in drama production is a very public secret and it precludes naive reading. Syrian viewers recognize both the constraints drama produ producers face and the strategies they devise to contravene them. They watch for elements of narrative dialogue or casting that appear either to appease or, appease or subvert regime priorities. As spectators, at the very least, Syrians have long been, in Ranciere's sense, emancipated. Furthermore, audiences recognize indirection as an aesthetic as well as political device. Drama fans value nuance and allegory. They dismiss overt sociopolitical observation, whether it slips through censorship or aligns with official rhetoric, as artlessly direct, Mubashir. 
and overly simplistic. Conversely, they view complex, multi-layered narratives and characters as successful attempts at subversion, even while acknowledging drama makers' own occasional complicity and production companies' ties to power. Paradoxically, serials produced under tight restrictions have enhanced visual literacy and raised production standards for technical elegance and formal innovation. Syrians favor opacity. Serials that, like waiting, combine topicality with artistry are those that endure in collective and critical memory. And here is an article from an opposition um, news platform, Aina Belady, um, about, uh, about waiting and um, its legacy. Rather than focus on official practices of control and containment, I shine light on how cultural producers operate within them. At the risk of overstating the Syrian drama field as a metonym of Syrian society, it does represent a broad cross-section. TV makers hail from a multiplicity of class, regional, and sectarian backgrounds and hold a variety of political stances. Competitive position-taking towards the regime, the society, Gulf funders, and each other structures the field and reflects a mode of expression that I have referred to elsewhere as a poetics of accusation. It plays out in a paradoxical pattern. Social dramas produced by regime-linked companies, directed by ambiguously positioned directors, and written by overtly oppositional scenarists. I argue that the Syrian leadership is neither the only player nor the ultimate winner in the game of cultural manipulation. More than a decade after Waiting First aired, critics and intellectuals, including some who claim they never watch television, hail it as a classic. Waiting screenwriter Najim Ser told me that the serial sounded an alarm bell that went unheeded. The conditions it depicted have indeed profoundly worsened, yet its legacy persists in television drama. It gave birth, as I mentioned earlier, to the haphazard genre that has appeared in virtually every subsequent Ramadan season since. And these works include uh, Nasser and Yusuf's Falda, or Chaos, of 2017, which depicted um, the wartime shantification of middle-class Damascus. Although set primarily in Damascus' wealthy districts, Hajjo's regret and Nedim of 2016 references the informal settlement in its opening scene. As a camera pans informal housing on the slopes of Mount Qasiyun, protagonist Arwa asks the question that waiting had posed through implication. The subtitles are mine, so they're a bit fun.
علينا أن نغير شيئاً ما في صيغة السؤال ما دام الجني هذه الكوارث كلها فما طبيعة الشرور التي زرعنا؟ إننا غالباً ما نتباهى بأن دمشق أقدم عاصمة مأهولة في العالم وهي كذلك فعلاً ولكن هذا الكلام يحمل لنا في طياته إهانة كبيرة نحن الأقدم إذا نحن أصحاب الخبرة الأكبر هذا ما يقوله المنطق منطق الحياة منطق التاريخ فالخبرات تراكمية ما الذي تراكم لدينا في واقع الحال؟ مئات السنين بل الآلاف منها ونحن نبني أجمل مساكن الأرض المنزل الدمشقي وفجأة وفي نصف قرن واحد فقط نجد أنفسنا محاطين بالأحزمة العشوائية والأنكى من هذا كله أننا ما زلنا نتغنى بالياسمين الدمشقي أكثر من نصف سكان دمشق أي أكثر من ثلاثة ملايين إنسان يقيمون في منازل غير صالحة للاستهلاك الأدمي منظر هذه المنازل ضار حتى بالبصر فهو يجرح العين بفجاجته كيف نمت هذه العشوائيات؟ من الذي سمح ببنائها أصلا؟ عشرات الأسئلة المهيبة وكلها قبل وقوع الكارثة أما وأن الكارثة قد وقعت فلم تعد المسألة في العيب وحده لقد صارت المسألة أولاً في الشر الذي بات يسكننا The serial is worth discussing in some detail. Arwa's rejection of urban nostalgia references the Damascene milia dramas and other forms of revivalism that evade the problems of the present. Had waiting siren been answered, it implies the disaster of war might have been averted. An ethical but ineffectual novelist, novelist Arwa retreats into his own private no- nostalgia. He raises the volume of a recorder playing Um Kalsum, the voice of a more hopeful era, to drown out the sound of bombing. In writer Hassan Sami Yusuf's rendering, regret's past appears rosier even as the source of eventual catastrophe. In a reversal of filmic convention, the contemporary moment of 2016 appears in black and white. Flashbacks of 2003 to 2011 in color. The present stark gray palette signifies, according to Hajo, not merely the grimness of war, but the polarizing of opinion and position and the rending of social relations. It also suggests regression. The notion that, as drama makers often lament, we're going backwards. Ottawa traces his own family's missteps, a national failure writ small, in a quest for answers, finding abandonment, submission, and complicity. His father, the humble-born Ibrahim Abu Abdul El-Ghul, literally the ogre or the ghul, builds a commercial empire on butchery. A sepia-toned flashback reveals a brutal necessity. 
The impoverished child Ibrahim performs his first animal slaughter. His eldest son Abdu carries on the destruction, uprooting a forest to build a pharmaceutical factory, producing medications that later solve wartime trauma. Middle son Suhail escapes to exile, leaving the patriarch's oppression and abandoning control of the family enterprise to the morally dubious Abdu. Abdu, for his part, frequently points out that his dirty work supports his siblings and leaves his brother Arwa free to write novels and screenplays. Arwa concedes his own passivity. As a young widower wallowing in personal tragedy, he failed to stem Abdu's unethical dealings. Women, Ardu's, Ar Arwa's mother, first wife, and sister, form the family's long-suffering backbone and pay the price for their menfolk's inaction. In Syrian drama's intertextual register, the fictional past becomes predictive. Arwa remembers Aboud, Waiting's Robin Hood character, who broke into a pharmacy one night and, annoyed to find an empty cash register, stole medication and sold it on the street the following day. Witnessing a genuine copy of this memorable scene, Arwa marvels that what was dramatized in 2006 had a decade later become a reality, but with a difference. There are all kinds of medicine, he says. Heart, liver, chest, any disease you might have. But I noticed that the, most of the medicine people were buying were those that treat psychological problems, tranquilizers, and sleeping pills. Hush's equivocal response to the conflict renders him gray. I have gray in quotation marks, by the way and vulnerable to widespread opprobrium. It has also positioned him to work across ideological and geographical borders. For instance, his 2013 serial will return shortly. Oops. Filmed in Beirut and Damascus, featured scenes of loyalist and oppositional actors representing their respective life, real life positions. And grayness has facilitated depictions of regime atrocity. A harrowing thread in regret shot in Syria follows a positively drawn dissident through imprisonment, torture, and ultimately suicide. And there is that character. Serials like Regret and We'll Return Shortly that were filmed in wartime Damascus now join the plethora of images from the Syrian war that circulate globally. Professional news outlets, citizen journalists, and social media activists have all featured photographs with varying degrees of graphic detail. This torrent of visual texts, coupled with a paucity of context, never mobilized the international community, that mythical entity, to rescue Syrian civilians, and the violence proceeded unchecked. Among oppositional intellectuals and commentators, the impulse to bear witness and document crimes brushed up against a growing unease with the facile exploitation and commodification of Syrian suffering. 
in the form of explicit images that are photographed, bought, sold, and exhibited without their subject's consent. Syrian oppositional artists spoke back to this imagery through another outpouring, that of creative dissent. As I have argued in my writing, some of this visual culture, particularly satire, drew on forms and conventions, conventions developed by creators, Hajo among them, of state-controlled drama. Documentarians and experimental filmmakers offered alternative humanizing visions. Prominent among these is Abu Nadara, an anonymous collective operating inside Syria and abroad. In addition to feature-length documentaries with limited distribution, Abu Nadara posts post a weekly bullet film on their Vimeo channel, as the slide illustrates, between 2011 and 2017. These evocative, genre-bending, often ethnographic shorts aim to disrupt what their creators see as a degrading visual narrative of Syrian victimhood. In a series of theoretically rich essays published on international platforms, the collective argued that the social, that the circulation of violent images violated a key demand of protesters in Syria and beyond that for karama, dignity. Abu Nadara's questioning of the right to the image sparked an ongoing public cultural reflection on the ethics of representation. And this is just a small sampling of some of that material. While much of this debate revolved around journalistic Im images of violated bodies, human bodies that is, Hajo's work provoked discussion of an additional dimension, fictional media filmed in ruins. The controversy revolved around the cord in Arabic, literally the unbiblical cord. A 21 minute short, Hajo directed as part of an EU funded project to produce fictional films on, Syrian, on women in Syria. Shot in the destroyed town of Zebedani, northwest of Damascus, in 2018, the film depicted an unidentified sniper preventing help from reaching a woman in labor. I will screen the promotion here. Oops. I lost my cursor.
Unable to reach the couple, a midwife shouts instructions across the intersection. In the end, the husband uses his truck as a decoy to distract the gunman, while his wife sends a bag of oranges to her neighbor across the cord strung above the intersection, celebrating the birth of a daughter. The Syrian dialect offers the only clue to the court setting. It appears a generalized anti-war statement. But it's precisely the film's neutrality, along with the politics of its production, that generated outrage. When the film appeared on the program of Sweden's Malmö Arab Film Festival last October, a group of activists launched a campaign to have it removed. Hajjo defended the film's neutrality on grounds of ethics. He told me, I didn't want to depict a woman on one side or the other. I'm against all fighting against civilians, no matter what their position. Long inured to criticism, he linked the boycott to dissidents pushed back against his working in Damascus. For some in the opposition, he said, my mere presence in Syria marks me as pro-regime. Here he refers to the notion that intellectuals and elite who remained in, in Syria during the war are regime loyalists and those who left oppositional, an assumption that doesn't hold up to scrutiny. While his grains of position may have played a role in mobilizing his critics, little of their discourse re referenced Hajo's previous work directly or pers his personal position. In fact, it avoided discussing the film's narrative. Indeed, some of those who spoke out against it on social media admitted to not having seen it. Their only issue with the film's content was its failure to name the culprit. More crucially, they argued, it was shot on the site of a war crime whose perpetrators remain in power and who granted the director permission to film there. The cord they maintained was far more dangerous than films with openly pro-regime narratives. Its director displayed callous indifference to the trauma of viewers from Zebedani and other destroyed towns and suburbs. An activist quoted in the press release calling for a boycott argued, the shooting of Hajjus the cord in Zebedani is like shooting a party on a mass grave. It did not help Hajjus case for even-handedness that, e that when Syrians, Syria's official news agency praised the film's depiction of the regime's fight against terror. Of course, there was no mention in the film of any such fight against terror. A statement published on the website of Bidayat, a nonprofit group of Syrian filmmakers in exile, did not mention any films or, or their makers by name. It argued that filming in regime-controlled war ruins constitutes cinematic looting. While condemning films shot in areas under regime control, it didn't question the ethics of filming in areas controlled by Al-Qaeda affiliates and other Islamist groups. And among the 33 signatories were actors who've appeared in Hajjou's TV dramas. Some Syrians who sympathize with the opposition expressed ambivalence. The young man who alerted me to the boycott, himself raised in Zebedani and a fan of Hajjou's work, said he felt torn over the issue. Opposition playwright, poet, and filmmaker Liwa Yazji shared her reservations with me. 
I have questions concerning the issue of quick statements, she said. I'm not fond of the generalization, you are allowed, you're not allowed to film in ruins. I feel we're fighting over who owns the tragedy and who owns the story. Historically speaking, we all do. But I totally understand the current inflammation and pain, and therefore it's good that this pain has been has become loud and heard. It should be added to the discussion about the images. And I like the debate around it as it moves and expresses ideas that we all should discuss and hear. Hannah Woods, Syria's leading cinematographer, also refused to sign the statement, noting, personally, I'm against banning any artwork because of its political identity and because prevention and exclusion are principles inconsistent with the human right to freedom of expression and publication. It would have been better, he argued, had the activists criticized the film on artistic grounds. Furthermore, he noted the film's message is ultimately anti-regime. As everyone knows, the opposition lacks the capacity to destroy buildings on the scale we see in the court setting. Some social media commentators took this argument a step further. One noted in an article on the Lebanese easing Daraj, that given the restricted access to areas destroyed in the conflict, films like the Cord serve to document rather than validate the regime's crime. In the end, the Cord was screened at the Swedish festival. Activists did succeed in pulling it from a screening in Istanbul, but it then went on to appear in 14 international festivals and garner five prizes. The debate reignited last year with Lebanese director Ahmed Hossens recreating in Zebedani the 2006 Israeli destruction of southern Lebanon, which actually occurred as I was watching the making of waiting. This film, released with the English title All This Victory, in Arabic, Jidar Sot, offered an explicit narrative that seemed to have nothing to do with the Syrian conflict. Yet critics, some of them writing in Bidayat, charged that the film conflates Hezbollah's resistance against Israel with the group's buttressing of the Syrian regime. How am I doing on time? Uh, you've got a few more minutes here. Maybe begin to wrap up. Okay. As Yael Navarro points out, the debris of war generates conflicted and complex affectivities. In its universal condemnation of warfare, the court became implicated in the same decontextualization and aestheticization of violence and suffering that prompted the right to the image movement. The bitter irony, as Syrian media scholar Nor Halabi notes, is that the use of real locations is, in large part, what catapulted Syrian TV drama to regional prominence. Syrian social realist drama creators maintain that it is through a sincere depiction of the local that the universal is evoked. But what happens to fictional realism in a real war and its unresolved aftermath? If they ignore the, the effects of war in their work, drama makers would betray their very realist ethos and deny reality. Many, like Les Hajjo, have accepted the challenge of realism, 
Indeed, as Syrian's leading TV drama critic Maher Mansour notes, the Arab satellite airways of the 2010s were shot through with Syrian pain. Here is his e-zine drama critics. The question remains, does filming in Syrian areas scorched by, by atrocity erase or document it? Does it undermine the ethics of Syria's signature on-location filming, which during the 2000s reminded audiences of a struggle that might otherwise have remained envisionable beneath the veneer of neoliberal prosperity? Syrian drama creators have devised a visual language of socio-political critique, one that has come to serve as a transnational register of critical commentary even as it raises new questions about the complicity required to execute it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Krista. A large virtual round of applause for a fascinating, engaging talk, uh, which elicited a, a number of interesting discussions in the chat box. And, uh, and we've got a number of questions as well. A lot of people were um, um, exercised, put it mildly, by Babel Hara or Babel Shusmu, whatever you want to call it. And uh, 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 had all sorts of fun comments about that in the chat. And, Do I need to be bleeped out in the... In the <laughs> yeah, Nahad will bleep you out in, in, in the end. We have some uh, praise from Neil. What a fantastic analysis of how artists and producers can work inside a repressive and censored system. Himself being quite familiar with the situation in Iran, he watched this as a description of the matrix of how such systems operate in general. He says his remark is not a question, but a compliment. And others like uh, Tubi saying, thank you so much. Uh, wonderful. Uh, whoever's watching Syrian drama knows how rich the culture is. And we see a lot um, of comments in the chat and Q&A uh, praising your depiction of, of an extremely complex situation uh, with great nuance and sensitivity. Um, Number of questions. Um, I'll try to link them together. So Sara, for example, she says she finds the issue of periodization in the Musal Salat very interesting in its own right. And Hajo's choice of sepia and black and white and then colored memories and the linearity of his time is fascinating. Um, also, this very heavily laden conceptions of nostalgia and the golden past seem to exist even if the no novelist bemoans nostalgia. It seems like one of those contradictions and ambiguities that are important. Do you want to uh, comment on that as well? That is a really great question. Thank you about that. And I, I didn't elaborate enough on this. Um, but it, what looks like a rosy past actually isn't when, when, um, when the details emerge. Because what Hajo and, and Yusuf do is they set up what happened um, in the complicity that they were all guilty of in different ways to different extents in the past, in the family um, and in, in their circles, uh, which is a wonderful allegory. So, and so embedded in that are very, very complex images. It was indeed rosier, but this is what led to the black and white we we're suffering from now. Right, right. It's a beautiful serial, by the way, if you have a chance to watch it, it's on Shahid. Uh, poignant as well to see that. It's heartbreaking, in fact. Heartbreaking. Um, I mean, I haven't been to Syria in so many years, obviously, for obvious reasons. I'm going to stick with Sara because she's got all sorts of great questions here. But here's another one. It's a follow-up combining two of hers. This interesting notion of the right to film in ruins um, and how that's related to debates about characteristics of social realism in Syria 
and not building sets, using the on-location filming that you mentioned, but also this long, that's a long-standing tradition. But also the irony is that the regime calls the actual events mujassamat. They call them sets. They, they think that the, the ruins themselves are fake. Um, but she's also wondering about, how about previous wars and conflicts and massacres? Like, how do you film in Hama on the ruins of the massacre? And, and how, how is there a prehistory to some of these questions um, as exercise, for example, through cinema and uh, television series? Um, great question again. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure whether um, whether the question is about Syria specifically or about, uh, you know, global traditions of filming in, in war, uh, in, in the remains of war. Of course, the Italian neorealists, who, by the way, G. Busser in particular, one of the screenwriters of Waiting, um, cite as a, you know, a great influence um, on their work, filmed in, in, in the remains of, I think it was even ongoing when the first Italian New film films came out, but that war was, was resolved. And I think that the, the issue here is, you know, we're still living through this in the, in the midst of this. Um, and there has not been a change of power. So that raises, I think, very, very different, um, a, a very different set of ethical questions than the Italian realists face, for example. And I'm actually looking for a, a parallel somewhere. I haven't found one yet, but if anyone has any ideas, I'd be really grateful. Because this is, of course, this is part of a chapter of my forthcoming book, um, and it's still in progress. So um, I'd be really grateful for any direction. Got some colleagues in the participant chamber there from Film and New Media here who might have some ideas on parallels, uh, South Asian cinema, for example. So speak up. Please. Uh, so here we go. Surabhi Sharma, uh, thank you for a wonderful presentation. Does melodrama inform the narrative styles in any of these television series? And if yes, what is the audience reception to that, to the melodrama? And how do activists and artists respond to this? Of course, there's a long tradition of discussing melodrama in these contexts, including Laila Belugo's work. So um, I'm just wondering how you might respond in terms of those broader conversations. And thank well, you, Surabhi. As I pointed out all too briefly, um, and I actually had more of this in the, in the uh, presentation, but I thought it would uh, bore people stiff, there is an intertwining of the two styles more generally, and they kind of exist on, I see it as a spectrum or poles. And Syrian drama, I mean, they, there are dramas that represent the very melodramatic pole, some of which Blaise Hajo himself has done, like um, People in Love, for example, the, like, a series of very unhappily ending love stories. Every single one, it's so Syrian drama, every single one ends un unhappily. And for the second season, by the way, this is an aside, but it's an interesting one. They solicited stories from, audience, from the audience and they were overwhelmed with emails at this point, emails, uh, 2007, I believe, six or seven, emails poured in with um, unhappy sob love stories um, and these were taken up by Syria's best writers and, and made into screenplays. Um, so that was a very melodramatic end. But even Waiting, which is uh, more on this, the realist end, has its melodramatic strains, the music, there are very, some very emotive events. Uh, the ending is, is, is a, a murder of the, one of the two protagonists. So there are those strains as well. I think the two operate kind of together. But if you compare it particularly to the Egyptian serials of the 80s and the, um, and the 90s and the 2000s, you really see a more realist um, edge 
It's interesting. Fascinating. I don't know if that answers the question. Oh, yeah, it gets close, much closer to uh, the heart of it. Um, unfortunately, a lot of questions are also in the chat box and in the q and I'm looking, I'll just stick with the Q&A. So um, going back to a question from Samia, who says, I always wondered why the Muselsel regret or Anadam in particular stood out in the post-war era. What made it special compared to other series? Um, I think two things. One was, was the filming, the, the black and white contrast with the, um, the color. I also think the script is, is just outstanding. Um, and Shakespearean in its way. It's kind of, here is a good example of the melding of, um, of melodrama and realism, because on the one hand, it, it, there were, there was these sort of operatic tragic, you know, quality to it. And there was even, um, a, a thread that was very much like love story, you know, the, the protagonist's wife, young wife dies. Um, and some of the, the scenes reminded me very much of that film from the in, in novel from the 1970s. But, you know, you really get the stark grittiness. You know, some of the bombing sounds were actual bombing sounds. They were not sound effects. I'm not sure that the ones on the opening, the, the um, opening scene that I showed were such, but some of those were, were used um, in, in the serial and they were experiencing the war as it was being filmed and the hardships of war. So I think all of that, um, and it was, again, it was about people, you know, it was about everyday struggles. Um, and even though it was about a fairly wealthy family, um, I think it was very relatable. Very and good. also the ideological messaging, I think also allowed a lot of people to engage with it in a way that some of the others that are more um, overtly adopting a one stance or another don't quite have that same appeal. Excellent, thank you for that. A uh, number of other questions coming in. Um, some you may already have responded to, like uh, the politics and political propaganda dimensions of fictional media production on this conflict. Is it direct, oblique, conciliatory, trying to keep an equal distance or footing? Does it show favoritism? How is religion represented? So there's some of those questions you've addressed already, but maybe the, 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 the question of religion, for example, um, is, is maybe underplayed in some of these. Do you have a response to that? Um, absolutely. The first part of the, the question, I just want to say all of the above. <laughs> um, the ones I tend to write about are, are the most complex of them. Um, the, and waiting was among them. And I just consider myself really lucky. That's why I say it was real fieldwork serendipity that I landed. I really landed on my feet <laughs> when that was the only production. You know, I didn't have a choice. Um, and it was great. It, it worked out really great to me. And since then, of course, Les Hajot has become, you know, one of Syria's leading directors. At that time, he was, he was really, this was, all, that was, waiting was only his second drama serial. Huh. Um, in terms of religion, you know, most drama, many drama makers, it's again, it's very hard to generalize, but many are secularists, even when they're believers, they uh, hold a secular vision of what they would like to see Syria's polity to be. And a separation of, you know, church and state, um, and a society that is, they might say tolerant. So 
and that is really reflected. And sometimes it's reflected in an issuing of religious issues altogether. Um, at other times, it is reflected in um, uh, sort of overt anti-Islamist statements, mm-hmm. depictions of ISIS, for example, depictions of bombings. Um, they tend to be in the minority. What I have noticed over the years is that in social drama in particular, at first you didn't see engagement with religion at all. And then slowly you started to see the issue being brought up. You started to see more characters who were religious, more women wearing the headscarf, wearing the hijab. Um, And I think it's gone to a place where like I'm thinking right now of Nedim, where you find characters who are muhajiba, who have who are wearing the headscarf, but yet it's not a, a big deal. Just as in everyday life in Syria, it's not marked in any way. It's kind of become normalized. But yet again, it's not every character. So I think they're trying to offer a vision of society um, that reflects what they see, both as the reality and and the way they would like it to to be. Good, thank you for that. I'm gonna combine a couple of questions here from uh, an anonymous attendee uh, and another one from Maria. So uh, how do you get involved with Syrian drama to begin with? And then in your research on Syrian drama, what sort of lens does it it offer us on national belonging and its ambiguities? So, because you raised early on this notion that a lot of Syrian cinema and television serials are uh, embrace opacity, ambiguity, the ordinary, and it's all of its complexities. Um, but they also have this aesthetic Arabism to them. So I'm just wondering if you might first tell us the backstory of how you got involved in this as an anthropologist uh, of media, and uh, what these, these this mediascape tells us about the contradictions of national belonging today. Well, okay. Well. I um, I started my inter- my dissertation fieldwork in 1992, so that really dates me. It wasn't even my first visit to Syria. I had lived there for a year in the 80s. Um, and you started I, when you were very young, though. You were like 15. I, so. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, a real prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, at that time. What was happening, and, and at that time, one could uh, uh, one was a little bit more open in in choosing a, a fieldwork topic, um, not having to choose something hard and fast before you went to the field, which was lucky for me because I was interested in food and how how people mark their social distinction in, in Bourdieu esque terms, um, Bourdieuian terms, um, through what they eat, what they cook and how they do that, where, where restaurants they go to, if they go to restaurants at all. And I got to Damascus and I started to look at that. And yeah, it was very interesting, uh, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite there for me uh, um, uh, as a dissertation topic. It would have been a paper topic. At the time I was looking into that issue, they aired, the Syrian television aired a, tele, a Syrian television production called Damascene Days, Ayam Shemiyah, during that first, the second Ramadan that I was there, actually. Um, And that series, people said, well, you know, you got to watch this because they'll be showing you authentic Damascene foodways. So I watched the first couple episodes with an eye to what they were doing with food, which was interesting. But watching the uproar in 
on the streets after it was shown. You know, the, 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 what, what I now know is what happens during Hitler's cells and, and, and during the broadcast season, the streets would empty and everybody would be talking about it afterwards, sometimes mimicking the characters. And it was also a time in which there were only a few options um, for Ramadan viewing. So I decided, well, I, I need to broaden this. So I brought, it was actually Damascene days that led me to broaden the whole topic to include all sorts of forms of Damascene revivalism and, their, and the controversies that they provoked because the serial kind of encapsul- encapsulated all of that. And then I went you know, back and wrote up my dissertation and um, got involved with, with another research project um, in, the, in the late 1990s. But in the early 2000s, just as I was beginning to think about, you know, what should I do for my next project and even beginning to think about whether, you know, I should try looking at some other society as anthropologists often do. And it's very good for an anthropologist to look at another area. I got drawn back into Syria. And the reason I got drawn back into Syria was the rise of the television industry, because from 1992, when I first started looking at it to the early 2000s, we had the Fauda, the real Fauda, even though they talk about the Fauda beginning in the early 1990s. For me, the real Fowler began with 2000, the ride when you had this convergence of the rise of satellite, the spread of satellite access. Yeah, NBC had been you know, launched almost a decade earlier, but spread access really began to spread in the 2000s. Also, the same with privatization of production companies in Syria, which had begun again in the early 1990s. Right. But it really took off under Bashar al-Assad in the early 2000s when uh, privatization was accelerated in the sort of crony form that it took, of course. The investment law number 11 or whatever they used to call that, <laughs> silly things. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I decided that, and I already knew some TV people for like Hassan Jabri, um, a, a real television pioneer who had um, I had worked with on on researching Damascene days. Um, so I kind of, I had those contacts and I, I, somebody had to tell a story. I felt very, very compelled. So I kind of feel like I, I, I got the sense as I was rewriting this presentation that I didn't make a whole lot of decisions that, you know, I kind of got drawn uh, one way or the other. And I feel like I, 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 speaking for my drama maker interlocutors, certainly with the war, I feel like they got drawn as well into telling stories that maybe they wish they weren't telling, but you know, it's there. They felt Um, compelled. You feel compelled. One feels compelled. So first I felt compelled to tell this fabulous story. And now I feel compelled to tell another dimension of it. Interesting, the story of a fractured nation with a, a mix of what you called it, nostalgia and dystopian visions. So the nostalgia is the hope, it's a forward-looking it's, look to the past, but the dystopian one is, is uh, hesitation and ambiguity. I'd like to ask a question to myself. There are also some questions coming in. Um, well, here's one from uh, Serbia again. This is probably more intelligent than my questions. I'll read hers. Says, uh, she says, I find it fascinating. Uh, uh, Serbia Sharma is a professor of um, film and new media here and, and deputy chief 
chair or program head of, and a, a documentarian herself and a filmmaker from, from India and of international repute and a great scholar, uh, an excellent person. She says, I find it fascinating that Syrian filmmakers are using the television series format to respond to a very realist war-torn landscape and using real locations to tell their stories. In India and in post-war Italy, social realism clearly denotes political affiliation that is critical of the state. Melodrama is often read as consolidating conservatism and as pro-establishment. Would this reading make sense in the Syrian mediascape? Listening to you, it seems that the reading is far more complex in Syria. And I might also add in addition, another factor, of course, is the role of the uh, Latin American telenovelas in, in, in the larger mediascape as well. Like, cause when you're talking about Ramadan serials and people not being on the street, that was Cassandra time when I, when I showed up in the nineties, like, no, where's everybody? It's like, well, they're watching Cassandra. <laughs> uh, interesting. Well, the, the, the interesting point about, and I'll just talk briefly about the telenovela, um, issue because it, it, it was raised again with, with the influx of Turkish dramas, um, from 2008, right. yeah onwards and but those tend to since the Faura really took off those tend to not be aired during Ramadan Ramadan has really become the season to watch the Musel cell and and there are um, Syrian Syrian television serials that are designed to sort of adopt that adopt the the telenovela format more closely or the Syri or the Turkish drama format um, and even those, the Syrian versions tend to be shown outside of Ramadan and they tend to be uh, longer than 30 episodes. Um, and you're absolutely right that they, uh, these, the, the range of dramas and the range of political positions they represent and the range of political positions their makers represent are broader. They cannot be categorized um, in the same way that the melodrama and realism um, polls characterized Italian neorealism, for example. Mm. So it's all mixed up in the same way that in the positions it's mixed up and the, the dramas themselves are mixed up in their registers and styles and in their political positions. So um, it's, uh, it, it's difficult to tease out, but that's also part of the, um, the, the quality, the value of, of them. Interesting. Fascinating. Thank you for that answer. Uh, here's another couple of curiosities. Have you seen Al-Wulada and Al-Khasira? Mm -hmm. And someone asked, suggesting you take a look at Dubbo Shanati, Pack the Suitcases, mm -hmm. which is the closest to reflecting daily life in Damascus during the war and the plight of escaping by sea. Um, any thoughts on those and other Musal um, Salat? Um, or maybe here's another. Yeah, I'll just leave it there. Um, I've seen both of those. Um, it was Wiladim uh, al and which was very hard hitting in its way, um, and, and a very political, a very sort of anti security state um, sentiment expressed, and written, by the way, by a, a very oppositional screenwriter. Um, and as for Dabushanati, uh, Pack Your Bads, that's another of Lace Hajo's works. I, I've seen it. Um, I like it very much. It's, um, it again tries to, and it does, and you're absolutely right, it, 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 deal, it doesn't deal with an elite family in the same way that Nedim does. Um, and it does try and convey the complexity of the situation in various political positions and um, and people have tended to, when I've spoken to them, read into it what, what they want to see or, or 
the opposite, read it as um, as as perpetuating the uh, the opposite um, narrative, the one that they disagree with. So um, either people love it because it seems to represent what they think, or they dislike it because it seems to represent the other position, whatever that other position is. So um, it's it, it's one of those attempts to straddle very much like uh, we'll return shortly. I, I, I think of them in, in quite the same way. But there was something, as I said, Shakespearean about Nedham mm. that really drew me. And it was more recent. So that's another reason that I... Um, and I also, just the depiction of um, uh, um, the torture um, of the young dissident, um, his arrest um, and imprisonment was was so um, moving that I thought that given the controversy that later arose with the cord, I thought that that one was the one that was really worth mentioning in this in this instance, but I agree, those two serials are definitely part of the part of the picture, very important part of the story. I had a, I had a, a comment and question, uh, and if you might elaborate on the 2009 Musosa Lisa where she mm -hmm. says, predicted where the society is heading and how it will be divided. Uh, it was honest, daring, and there was no Arab drama that touched on controversial topics like Lisa Sarabin. And just wondering what your reaction to that particular one is. And then a follow-up question about the Leith Hadju is, what was his response to all the controversy about uh, the cord? Okay, so the first one was... Lisa Sarabin and, and then uh, Hadju's responses. Um, like I said, yes, I've seen it. Um, it's daring. I don't think it's the most daring that I've seen. Um, uh, and it, it, too, has a very sort of secular, progressive undertone. It's an important drama. Um, but I think Syrian drama, generally speaking, moves in that direction. Although there are some, there are some dramas, there are some social dramas that represent conservative viewpoints on the family and gender issues and all of that. And there are some that have a seemingly very pro-regime narrative of the war and, and other matters. Um, but I tend, I, I look at the other end of the spectrum and that, that other end of the spectrum represents quite a lot of work and quite a lot of work that is both widely watched and critically acclaimed. Because I think that's another important distinction. When you have all this differentiation and you have so much production, not every drama has a shelf life. I'm still amazed at Elintizar waiting shelf life. The fact that that article that I showed you on Aina Belady, that was from 2019. Wow. So there are there are some that really stay in people's memory. That's that's another reason why I feel so lucky to have landed um, on that production in 2006. Hajj's response, I think I mentioned some of it. It's um, he sees it as part of the wider uh, um, dissatisfaction with members of the opposition, particularly in exile, who have different priorities, um, mm -hmm. left the country and. Um, are not dealing with the day-to-day -day life in Syria and its constraints. He sees that as they've already written him off in a sense. Uh, I, so he see, saw the, the, the controversy as part of, of that writing off. Um, and the extent to which that people's 
predetermined opinions of him and his work and his positions informed that controversy is unclear to me because it's unclear in the statements. Um, I would imagine among some people it did, among others it didn't. Some you know, Syrian intellectuals do not watch television. In fact, there was a controversy last year over the use of a photograph from one of, one of the Caesar images in Amusasa, in a Syrian drama, to you know, talk about, to, to illustrate a fictional scenario that had nothing to do with the war. Probably, we don't know why that photograph was chosen. Probably it was just there. Um, but trying to find controversy, it really did not spark much controversy. And I was really shocked. I, you know, looking, asking friends, looking on in social media, there wasn't a whole lot said about it. And I think it was because it was in a, in a Syrian musoso shown on Syrian television. Right. right. So, this is an example of the poetics of accusation. Or the the yeah, the politics yeah, of accusation. You mentioned that. Yeah, that seems to be the case. There's another question coming in from Mazen. What's your opinion about the big production drama series, The Godfather, Al Arab, especially that it was reflect that it reflected a, a big part of the situation of the, of the Syrian leadership before 2011? Any sense of that one, The Godfather? I've not seen I, that one. I haven't actually followed that one. I saw a couple of episodes. It's 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 one that I haven't looked at as carefully as I might have. Um, I, I think that's the case with many pre-2011 Syrian dramas, that if you look at them, you, you, it's no surprise right. you know, what's happened since. <clears throat> yeah, you can that, find hindsight is very clear, and you can see a lot of the tensions embedded in the narratives, uh, certainly in cinema, in, in fiction, obviously, even in music, and, musical productions. And that's part of my argument about Syrian drama, and, and I, I guess you can extend that to all of popular culture and cultural production and expressive culture, um, that it kept us, it kept middle classes aware of the struggles that, you know, if you were visiting Damascus in the mid-2000s, the mid-2000s, mid you might have thought, oh, wow, you know, if you just went to Damascus and downtown Aleppo, this country's doing pretty well. It's doing so much better than it did under socialism, so much better than it did under Hafez. Wow, wow, wow. Um, but yet, if you were watching television, you knew, you know, that this was only part of the story. Right. And probably not the most important part. Yeah, excellent. I'm reminded of The Road as well, showing uh, in very dramatic terms um, how life in the cities is certainly not how it's depicted in the Musasalat like Bab al-Hara or even the contemporary ones because it shows the outskirts, it shows uh, the, the displacement and the distress. Um, you mentioned something in your last comment, which is um, my other favorite city in the world, aside from Damascus, which is Aleppo. And a lot of uh, you know, the talk in Leith Hajjo is from Aleppo. I believe his father was Omar Hajjo, who was a friend of mine. And um, and uh, just wondering, uh, and Haysim Haqqi is from Aleppo, and Nihad Sirdis wrote uh, Han al-Khirir, and, and, and uh, um, I'm just wondering um, if, if that internal uh, dynamic of competition um, also plays out in terms of some of these ambiguities and in, in conflict era productions. Um, a, a conflict era productions um, have really been limited to Damascus and talking about Damascus issues. Okay. Actually, drama of the 2000s was very Damascus based too, even when it was produced by many, many Halabis, by many, many Aleppines. 
and, and actors as well, like Basam Kusa, like some of the leading right. actors are also, are also Halabi. Um, but in the eight, in the nineties, there was, uh, something called, um, Aleppine drama, uh, drama Halabiya. There was, it was, it was spearheaded, of course, by Haisam Hapti. And there were some really wonderful projects, um, like, uh, Babel Hadid, was it? Babel Hadid, yeah. Khan al-Hadir. Yeah. Khan al-Hadir is the most well-known one. Babel Hadid is yeah. possibly the most beautiful one. Um, Khan al-Hadir had the, the great screenplay. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of died out in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And Damascus really took over in so many ways. And I think probably in the imagination of the country as well in, in the 2000s. Right. Um, but there were still moments. You know, there was an episode of um, People in Love, Ahl al-Gharam set in Aleppo using, I think for the first time I've ever heard really heavy Aleppo dialect written by Nihad Saris. So it, it was, there were moments of it, but there isn't enough happy of it. To hear that. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't enough of it for us to say, well, you know, there was a, you really saw a different ideological slant um, and a different set of priorities or anything like that. I wish there had been some kind of expansion yeah. Um, and, and, and when drama makers are accused of focusing too much on Damascus, you know, it's true. And a lot of that has to do with just the logistics of production and the fact that, you know, as Jeeb Nasser told me at one point, Syrian drama mm-hmm. succeeded because it was cheap. Basically, it under it undersold, it undercut the market. Right. And part of that cheapness is, is, you know, they've managed to work out the logistics. So production companies are located in Damascus. Most of the actors live there most of the time. So it is, it is cost effective. Right, right, right. Among yeah, other reasons. Fascinating. Um, we're going to probably end with this question here, and maybe if another follow-up comes through. Um, there was an earlier question from Neil about the, the language used in the, in the film in Zabadani, if that was a dialect from Zabadani used, uh, and there's some questions about language, but how about like uh, Kurds and Kurdish issues? Are they ever portrayed in the Musal Salat? Um, I know in the 90s, for example, you had the, the, uh, the Romani or Rajar characters, uh, Emil Arfa, for example, playing one, I forget the name of the Musa, so maybe it was, um, it was Jamal Suleiman. And it was one of these- Hanal Hamir, actually. Oh, that was it, okay. Um, and uh, so those uh, language and culture issues came up of uh, marginalized groups. So how about, Yanis uh, is asking about uh, the use of the Kurdish language or Kurds, um, is that a topic that's um, dealt with in terms of this notion of fractured national belonging? Mm-hmm. Great question, and my answer thus far is only obliquely. And one example that comes to mind is The Well, which is another one of the shantytown serials, one that uh, Noor Halabi has written about. I mean, they don't actually talk about Kurdish issues, but it's set in the, the Kurdish area um, on the, you know, the, the face of, of Mount Qasim. Right. And the, um, the actors, uh, sorry, the characters' names are very obviously Kurdish. So there's no hiding that it's, that, that it isn't actually mentioned in the narrative, but it's very clear that this is the community that they're addressing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Here's the last question. I, uh, we're, we're running out of time, but I'm gonna honor Nasser Rabat to ask this question here. He says, thanks for the wonderful talk. And perhaps this is a big question and it is a big question, but could you say a few words on the influence of the Syrian Mosul Salat elsewhere in the Arab world and how they have been, how they have affected the image of the Syrian, especially in the Gulf? And you spent some time in here in Sharjah. Um, 
So has there been an influence abroad? Wow. That's a big um, question. Yeah. Well, I think it really did familiarize people with Syrian, di Syrian dialect. And I also think getting back to the question that I never got that I didn't answer earlier, um, we got sidetracked. The question of how Syria, both through Damascus, manages to represent the very local, the very Damascene, the very traditional Damascene, and yet evoke this wider sensibility. So somehow Cairo and serial set in Cairo never quite, it seems to me, had that widespread appeal uh, or widespread um, resonance in terms of people identifying with it. People loved it. Um, it was prominent. People watched it. But it didn't feel Arab in the same way. And the reasons for that may have to do with Syria and its position in the Arab world and in the beating heart of, of Arab nationalism. Um, and the fact that somehow um, its makers managed to evoke Contemporary issues that are shared. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, it's a it's a very big question. The and the question of um, familiarizing. I think it basically familiarized people in the same way that Egyptian cultural products in the nineteen fifties and sixties, even earlier, familiarized everyone. So everybody understands Egyptian in a way that perhaps wasn't true of Syrian 30 years ago and is now more true. And certainly this may have been the first time that many people have heard the very traditional Damascene accent. Um, you know, that's interesting. I know when I was uh, in Morocco back in the early 2000s, and when Syrian Musalsalat were really spreading, and I would walk around in the market and speak, they would immediately recognize me as Syrian. Whereas in the early era, when I was there in the 90s, they're like, uh, what are you saying? They wouldn't understand me. So anyway, uh, we've run out of time, but there are lots of uh, wonderful um, questions and comments in the chat. This has been one of the most, uh, not one of it, has been the most engaging chat and Q&A that I've had to moderate, and I've moderated several of these talks. So again, a hearty round of uh, applause uh, virtually uh, for Krista Salamander for an excellent talk and discussion. And thank you to all the participants who um, ex uh, were uh, almost 60 or 70, including dear colleagues from New York, hello, Karen. And, um, and colleagues here at NYU. Uh, thank you all for your um, participation tonight. Note that this entire event has been recorded and will be available uh, for streaming on the NYU LW Institute website uh, very soon. Thank you again and good night. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu. Edu slash institute.